7. Luke chapter 7, you'll find your place in verse 1. It is an amazing thing, amazing grace, that God has granted us faith. In this passage, we're going to see faith commended to us. But we must always remember that it is grace. It is the grace of God by which we receive this faith and by which we are saved. You see, our world conditions us to think about our own accomplishments when we want to commend ourselves to someone else. Think about the last time you applied for a new job or if you tried to gain entrance into an academic program of some sort. You filled out an application, you submitted your resume, and in it, if you did it the right way, as we're told, you sang your own praises. You tried to sell yourself to somebody. You wanted them to come away and feel impressed. You wanted them to come away amazed. What an extraordinary person this is who's applying for this job or this position or this grant or fill in the blank. But, quite frankly, Jesus is not impressed with us. We don't commend ourselves to him by our accomplishments. No, there's something else that amazes Jesus, and we'll see it in this passage. Namely, remarkable faith. Remarkable faith is what will leave Jesus amazed in this passage. It's the kind of faith that recognizes that everything that we have is of grace. Everything that God has given us is a gracious gift. That's the kind of faith that's commended to us in the passage before us this morning. And so if you found your place, would you follow along with me in verse 1? And I will read to verse 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. For I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. 
And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Father in heaven, we pray, O Lord, that you would open our eyes, soften our hearts, grant us wisdom and understanding to understand your word, and grant us faith to believe it. Grant us faith, O Lord, to believe all of your promises, all of your goodness, all you have assured us of, you will surely bring it to pass. For you, O Lord, are gracious God, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, the God who keeps covenant with your people forever. So we pray, O Lord, grant us the faith to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are two themes that we're going to see predominantly in Luke's gospel as we come to this section in chapters 7 through 8, and including, to some extent, chapter 9. And those themes are faith and salvation. We're going to see the word faith or believe several times throughout these chapters, and we're going to see several references to salvation as well. Sometimes in your translation, words for salvation will be rendered as healing, as a reference to healing, as appropriate to the context. But here, what Jesus is doing is he's doing miraculous deeds by which he saves somebody from some plight, and those saving works and the healing, in the cases of healing and raising someone from the dead, those prefigure his ultimate work of salvation. Faith and salvation are two predominant themes in the texts that are before us in the weeks ahead. We're also going to see the prophetic ministry of Christ. The prophetic ministry of Christ. We'll see several references to his prophetic ministry. Two and one in this passage in 7.16 and one later in weeks to come in verse 39 of chapter 7. He'll also be placed in contrast with John. And we're going to see that there are things that he does that recall to us events from the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Jesus is presented as one who is a prophet and yet as one who excels all the prophets, who is more than a prophet. And we need to see how that ensues and how that how Luke presents that to us. Those are two of the main themes, faith and salvation, or we might say what is saving faith and the prophetic ministry of Christ that we will explore in the weeks to come. This morning we consider the first two narratives at the head of this section of Luke's gospel, and we do consider them together because it seems that Luke would have us do so. Why do I say that? Well, it has been Luke's habit and will be his habit to place people in contrast to help us to see something of Christ's working, something of God's working among his people. We saw that in the birth narratives, where we went back and forth between looking at Zechariah and Mary. And we're going to see it later on in Luke's gospel. Here he presents to us two individuals who are in great need, and yet, from human standards, they look very, very different. They are two people who are very, very different, and yet they are both people in need of Christ's saving work. We'll begin then with the faith of a centurion. The faith of a centurion set before us in verses 1 through 10. Now, as the passage unfolds, I want you to see Jesus has just finished that great sermon, the Sermon on the Plain that we have been exploring in previous weeks, and now he enters Capernaum. And while he's there, a delegation of the elders come to him. A delegation of the high-ranking Jewish men of Capernaum. They come to him and they have a message. 
There's a centurion in town that is a commander of a hundred men, a Gentile, a Roman man, who is some importance. And this centurion has a servant. And that servant is very valuable. The centurion loves him. The centurion values him. But that servant is near to the point of death. He is sick. And so this delegation from the elders of the Jews, they come to Jesus and they plead with him zealously, earnestly, saying, heal this man's servant. That's the request. And they make their case by presenting the credentials of the centurion. They make their case by listing bullet points on his resume, as it were. And we can uh, fill in some context here by thinking about this centurion and his place in the society in Capernaum and what he might have uh, been like, what kind of figure this might have been. He certainly would have been a great man in his community, a commander of 100 men in a little Galilean outpost, Capernaum. He would have been a man of some means. And he would have been given to uh, something called patronage, uh, being a benefactor, what we would today call philanthropy. He would have used his means to um, serve the society in which he was placed. And there are all kinds of reasons why a centurion might do this. One reason is that it might lead to further promotions if he is viewed as one who is philanthropic, one who is generous with what he has. But it also engenders a favorable response of the people to Rome by him filling this role. That doesn't mean that he's not well-meaning. It doesn't mean that he intends to uh, be gracious to others. It just means that this might have been a common thing that a centurion would have done where he was living. And this centurion did go to quite great lengths. He, in fact, as the elders of the Jews told Jesus, was the man who funded the construction of their synagogue. He is the man who built their synagogue, he says. This is a great man. And he's not just a great man. He loves the Jewish people. He loves God's people. And so he's worthy, they say. They present this as resume points, as bullet points on a resume to say, look, this man deserves for you to do this service for him. Look at all that he has done for us and for our people. Look at this great man. I think in, uh, as, as by way of illustration of the founder of a company I once worked for, by the time I worked there, he had since passed away. His name was Fred Lennon, and Forbes magazine once called him the shyest billionaire. But Fred Lennon was legendary at that company because of the way in which he treated people. He was known as a great philanthropist, had funded many different uh, hospitals and schools during his life, but he was also known as a good boss. He was a man who cared for his employees. He took the whole month of August and shut down the factory for an entire month and paid all his employees to guarantee that his employees would always have an entire month off paid. He gave his employees shares in the company so that by the time they'd worked there for 30, 40 years, some of the people who were doing nothing more than cleaning the shop floor were already millionaires from the interest they had earned. This is the kind of man who cares about his people, and so he was rightly legendary. He would have had no trouble writing his resume if he ever had any need to apply for some kind of position. Why would he? And that's the kind of man, maybe not to that extent, but the kind of man this centurion is. It's an easy resume to write, easy to get a letter of recommendation. And even though he's a Gentile, and normally a Jewish man wouldn't come into the home of a Gentile, this man is different 
these elders of the Jews say. He really does deserve for you to do this. So they commend him to Jesus, thinking, for all these reasons, he's worthy of this service that you can do for him. But we're going to find is that maybe they've misrepresented this centurion. Maybe they've misrepresented his intentions. That he didn't send that delegation to sing his praises. Because we see that Jesus starts going with them in verse 6. And Jesus went with them and he's not far from the house. Perhaps that's a way to indicate to us that the centurion could see him coming and singing, Oh, that's not what I was thinking. Now it's not the elders of the Jews that he sends, but it's his friends that he sends. He sends out his friends to meet Jesus on the way. And as they come to him, they deliver the message that shows his true intentions. This is what the centurion meant to say by sending a delegation to seek aid from Jesus. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, Luke uses different words that both translate to worthy, and they both have that same sense. In the first case, when they held him up as worthy, it was the idea of he's deserving of what you could give him. In this sense of worthy, it's the sense of someone's personal greatness, that he is, uh, that he is mighty, that he is strong to do something, or that, that he rises to a certain level of stature. We've seen it before in Luke chapter 3, when John said about Jesus, I'm not worthy even to stoop down and untie his sandal. John was a great prophet. But John recognized that he wasn't even worthy to do the most menial task on behalf of his Lord. That's the sense here. This centurion is saying, I'm not worthy. In fact, that is, I don't rise to such a level of greatness. I'm not such a big and important man that I'm able to tell you, come and do this for me. Come under my roof and do what I command you. I'm not worthy of that. I don't have that authority. And so the reason he sent that delegation of the Jews, he explains in verse 7, was for this. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. I didn't come to you. Why? Because I, I knew I'm not worthy. Not because I wanted you to think how worthy I am, but I'm not worthy. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. And then what's a, what he says next is truly remarkable. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Let's think about that confession of faith. And Jesus does commend it to us as faith. What is the centurion saying? He recognizes that in some way, he and Jesus are alike. They are both invested with a kind of authority. An authority that has a purpose to bring order to a world filled with chaos. That's what the Romans thought they were doing. When the Romans sent centurions and, and, and uh, soldiers into various towns throughout their empire, what were they there to do? They were there to ensure peace and rest and order. They were there to bring order to a chaotic society. And the centurion had the ability to affect that order simply by giving orders. And so he describes his authority. I'm a man set under authority and one who is others under my authority. That is, I'm a man set under authority with soldiers under me. So he says to a soldier, 
go. What does he do? Soldier goes. He says to another, come. And what does he do? Exactly what the centurion said. He says to a servant, to a slave, do this. And he does it. He obeys. And so, with his authority, he brings order to a disordered society. That is the nature of his authority. And in some respects, it is like in kind to Jesus. But note that he recognized he did not have authority to say to Jesus, you come. You come to me and do this for for me. He recognized that that was something different. He couldn't do that. Because Jesus too was invested with authority, but was had an authority that existed on an entirely different plane of reality. I served in the Navy, as many of you know, for many years. I served under great men, men like the centurion, men like the people that commanded a centurion. I've served under captains and admirals, and they could tell me, go. And I went. And I could tell some of my sailors, go. And they went. And the plane of our authority existed within the construct of the United States military. It went all the way up to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to a man at the top who wore four stars on his collar. And yet, his authority was in a different plane than the greater authorities in our culture. For he ultimately could only do that which he was authorized to do by our elected officials, ultimately by our president, the commander-in-chief. That was an entirely different plane of authority, one which he could never step into unless he was willing to take off the uniform and try to attain to that authority. This is an illustration to help us understand what the centurion is recognizing and how remarkable it is because in that Roman world, they don't have this separation of the political and the military lines of authority. His line of authority, the centurion's line of authority, goes all the way back to the emperor in Rome. In human terms, it goes back to the man who is endowed with the greatest authority in all the earth, and yet that man in Rome cannot say to a demon, go. He cannot say to a person who is sick, be healed. He cannot say to a dead man, rise, and have him rise. The centurion recognizes that Jesus' authority exists on an entirely different plane, an entirely different sphere, and rightly recognizes he's not worthy to have Jesus come into his presence. So he merely asks for Jesus to be gracious to him. I'm under authority. You're invested with authority too. You've received authority, and he couldn't articulate it quite this way, but we can now. You've received authority from your Father in heaven, and you do whatever he pleases. So the centurion asks, simply say the word. I know that you don't even need to come into my presence to make it happen. You simply need to say the word, and what you say will happen. It is remarkable faith. It's extraordinary faith, and it's all the more extraordinary when we see it in contrast with the people who should have known. The elders of the Jews should have known. But they were still operating with a mindset of salvation by works, something you earn because you deserve it. And he's operating from a totally different mindset. I need this one who has authority 
to save my servant. And I don't deserve it. Simply ask for it. And Jesus commends that to us as faith. Let me put it very clearly. What this centurion showed was a recognition that was right about himself and a recognition that was right about his Lord. He even calls him Lord with that second delegation, addressing him as Lord. A centurion addressing a man from Nazareth as Lord. Amazing. And he recognizes his utter and complete lordship and his utter and complete worth and his own unworthiness. It's an amazing recognition, but that is, simply put, the hallmark of faith. We see that we are sinners. We see that we deserve nothing from God. We say with the words of Isaiah 53, as we read this morning, we're all like sheep, stupid sheep. We've all gone astray. We all wander on our own way. That's what we are like. That's that first step of faith, recognizing That we have nothing in ourselves that would commend us to a holy God. Nothing in ourselves that we could put on a resume that would impress our maker. And so we stand completely and totally in need of his grace. Therein is that second recognition. That this one who is Lord might be gracious to this man who calls him Lord. Might answer his plea. He does, because we're going to see in the next narrative, he indeed is a gracious Lord, the one who is gracious and compassionate to his people. And Jesus commends this very clearly to us and to his hearers. When he turns to them, he marveled. We don't see that word very often with Jesus as the subject. We see it a lot in the Gospels. A lot of people are marveling, are amazed at the things that Jesus does. He's healing people, you can imagine. He's casting out demons. You can be, imagine how someone might be amazed. But only in a few instances, in fact, three instances in all the Gospels, do we see that Jesus is amazed by anything or anyone. And it always has to do with faith. Two of the instances are the same. In Matthew's parallel account and this one, Jesus is amazed at this centurion's faith. It is remarkable, not least because this man is a Gentile and he demonstrates greater, more perceptive faith than even the Jewish people. But he's also amazed if you look over at Mark chapter 6 when he comes into his hometown in Nazareth. He's amazed at the unbelief of the people of his hometown. The only times in all the Gospels when we see that anything amazes Jesus. And we should take note of that. We should notice this thing. If it amazes him, then it is truly remarkable. And why is it remarkable? Why is it so amazing? We sang about it when we sang Amazing Grace. Because even faith, even faith is a gracious gift from God. This kind of belief is as miraculous as the healing that he did. Not one of us can make ourselves to believe because we're so smart or we're so learned. We rely completely and totally on God to do a work that only he can do, to grant life where there's only death inside, to give us, to cause us to be born again, to give us new life so that we who were blind and unbelief might see and believe 
and recognize Jesus Christ for who he is. This is God's work in our salvation in bringing us to a saving faith. It is true that you must repent and believe if you are to be saved. But it is remarkable when anyone does this because no one does this of his own accord. It is a gracious work of our God through the Spirit working in us. That's no different than here for this centurion. And so I ask you this morning, if you have not believed, if you have not believed in Jesus Christ, what's, what's keeping you? Why are you waiting? Pray to the Lord. We read these words in Proverbs 2 this morning. Cry out to the Lord. Call to him and ask him to give you wisdom and understanding. Ask him to give you light. Ask him to give you faith that you might believe. Trust that he will answer. Only believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And nothing about that call contradicts the fact that this is ultimately God's work in you. And yet I extend that call to you. I challenge you, if you have not believed, believe in him now. He came, he lived a perfect life that you could not live. His resume is good enough. His resume is worthy. And he tells us, stop submitting your own resume. The reason I was lived a perfect life, the reason I died on a cross for you, the reason I rose from the dead was so that you could submit my resume. Submit his resume. That's faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, give thanks to your heavenly Father for that amazing grace that he has worked in your life. For it is a great work of our compassionate Lord. Now we turn the page. We come to this narrative of the widow's son and I have suggested that we ought to consider these two together. Luke puts them both before us for a reason. It's his habit, as I've said, of putting narratives together and often a man and a woman in contrast with one another. But that's not the only contrast that we see. We see that the centurion is a great man and a Gentile. This is a Jewish woman, but she's a woman who is in a pitiable state, in a very difficult situation. Here, we find that she is both a widow and now motherless. She has just lost her only son. As Jesus comes to the gate, town, there's a great crowd that's gathered around her, that's They're going in procession and they're carrying the beer. They're carrying the casket on their shoulders. And the boy's laying in it. He's died. They're weeping and they're sorrowful. It's enough to move any person's heart. We all ought to feel our compassion as we consider the plight of that woman. In that culture, in that day, if a woman was both widowed and had lost her only son. She had no hope except to trust in the kindness of others. She couldn't go and get a job that would pay her a salary, not anything of a reputable sort. She was probably too old, perhaps, to marry. Maybe not so, but probably too old to find a husband again. 
No insurance policies, no social security. Her husband had died, and her only son was her only hope to provide for her through the rest of her days, and now he's died. You see how pitiable her condition is, how difficult her situation is. Today she mourns the loss of her son. Tomorrow she wonders, what will I do to survive? That's the picture that we have here. That's the situation in which she finds herself. And Jesus has compassion on her. We step back and say, well, wouldn't anyone? Doesn't that picture even move the hardest heart? And yet, here's the difference. Just like we saw in the confession of the centurion. Jesus loves like God. When he loves, he acts in love in a saving way way that you and I can't do. When we feel compassion towards someone, we might try to help, but there's only so much we can do. We can't reverse the reality of the situation that has brought upon them their pitiable state. We feel bad. What more can we do? And in that, then we're tempted to say, well, let me think about other things. It's too sad, and there's nothing I can do anyway. But here, Jesus draws near He has compassion on her. And he says to her astounding words, amazing words, do not weep. It's utterly absurd. If you went to a funeral and you went in happy and smiling, maybe singing a tune or whistling a song, and you said, don't weep, people would say, get out of here. What's wrong with you? This is a time for weeping. Jesus says, don't weep. And we're reminded of what he said in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who weep now. Why? You will laugh. And he's going to do a mighty work that shows that even now, he's already making that future eternal reality a reality in this woman's life. Do not weep, he says. And then he comes up and he does another amazing thing. In the last narrative, he was willing to come into the presence of a Gentile at the urging of the Jewish elders. Here, he's even willing to go up and touch the casket of a dead man. Something you didn't do in Israel. Something, a dead body being associated with uncleanness. You didn't touch dead bodies. You didn't come near them. But he goes up. He touches the casket. People stop and you can understand why. What is he doing? And he speaks these amazing words. Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sits up. The dead man does exactly what Jesus said. Not only, as we saw in the last narrative, can he command and heal somebody from a great distance, as the centurion recognized, even death did not put this boy beyond the saving reach of Christ. Even death did not prevent him from delivering him from that which had killed him, from bringing him back to life. And it is a picture of that future reality that Christ will bring in its fullness when he comes again and when the dead in Christ are raised to newness of life forever. It's a picture of what he does in us when God grants us faith, when God grants us new life. It's a real foretaste that he really worked here in this town of Nain so many years ago. He spoke, and the boy obeyed. The dead man 
rose and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. And rightly, fear seized everyone. Wouldn't fear seize you? It's a typical response, the natural response, when you realize that you have come into the presence in some way of Almighty God. In some way, God has shown his power in your midst. And you're seized with fear. And the people do respond with a profession of faith saying a great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people. Those words recall the words of Zechariah's great song. Back in chapter 1 of Luke, after John's birth, in verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And in verse 78 of chapter 1, he said that of the Lord, his tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall Visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And as Zechariah spoke prophetically of what God was doing through, not his son, but through the one to whom his son came to point, through Jesus Christ, here now we see these people confessing that God in fact is doing that in this one whom they call a great prophet. God has indeed visited his people in a saving way. The report, of course, then goes out throughout all Judea. But here the focus is on not the mighty power of Christ, though that's clearly in our minds, but on the great compassion of our Lord. The great compassion to this woman in need And the way in which he showed his great love for her. The way in which he encouraged her not to weep. The way in which he intervened in her situation. With no one even having to ask. Simply seeing the need. And visiting her with great compassion and with great power. This is a portrait of our Lord. This is what commends him to us as one in whom we should believe. His great authority and his great grace. He has the ability to save. And he has such great love that he will save. And for us, we might wonder, what about our plight? We've lost loved ones. Everyone here, I suspect, has lost loved ones at some point in their lives. Perhaps in some times, tragic ways. Everyone here has suffered tragedies. Everyone here has faced difficulty in his or her life. What about us? Will God visit us? Has God visited us in a saving way? Well, we ought not to expect that he will do it exactly the way that Jesus did it for this woman. Of course. I don't need to tell any of you that. You know that. And yet we can know and be assured that this Lord, who is compassionate, is compassionate to all. His grace knows no limits. And he will surely show that great grace to us. And so if now for a time we endure weeping, a little hardship, we can look to these past examples and see that just as he turned the weeping of that woman into joy 
into something marvelous and astounding. He will surely do so for us, for all the trials and all the difficulties that we face. He will bring about that great reversal because he is able and he is willing because of his great love for us. And these kinds of things assure us of that truth. They assure us of Christ's authority and his great grace. So we ought to believe So we ought to trust him, not because we are commended to him, but because he is commended to us as the one who is able and who is willing to supply all our needs. Now, I said at the beginning that there are two themes that predominate this section of Luke's gospel, and one concerns Jesus' prophetic ministry, and I I do want to say a word about that because as we see Jesus' authority and his great grace, we also begin to see something of his person. And Luke will unfold this progressively. It is important to recognize, as they said, that a great prophet had arisen in their midst. But it's also important not to stay there, to go beyond that expectation and to recognize that here in this man, in Jesus of Nazareth, is someone who is more than any other prophet who came before him. And Luke shows that to us as well. If you've been with us in Sunday school, you know as we've looked at passages like Deuteronomy 18, that in the Old Testament, there was an anticipation that a great prophet might, that a great prophet not might, but would come someday. One who was like Moses, but one who was greater than Moses. One who did Moses-like things in speaking for God and also speaking on behalf of God's people to God. And yet, one who would be much greater, who would excel Moses in every way. And along the way, we see in the Old Testament narrative many different prophets. And two that stand out among all of them are Elijah and Elisha. Particularly because these two prophets were associated with mighty deeds, with great works. All the other prophets, by and large, went around speaking God's word for him. And you can read those words in books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and the book of the twelve, that is what we call the minor prophets. And in the books of Kings and in Chronicles, we also see the careers of some of those prophets. But Elijah and Elisha stand out because they did great and wondrous deeds. Deeds that are mirrored here in the works of Jesus. You see, Elisha healed a Gentile military commander. And yet, in that particular narrative, that Gentile commander was different than the one that we saw here. For his faith was weak, and he had to be forced into coming to the prophet and doing what the prophet said. Nevertheless, there's parallels conceptually between what we see here. But even more than this, we see a particularly striking parallel in 1 Kings 17. And I'll ask you to turn there. In 1 Kings 17, where there Elijah, like Jesus would do, raised the son of a widow to life. In 1 Kings 17, and I'll read the words of verse 17 through the end of that chapter. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe, there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. 
And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid on him his, uh, laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. The word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. We see in that passage something very similar. We see a widow with a dead son. We see that through Elijah, through the prophet, that son is brought back to life. And even the language of that verse of that that passage, is echoed in the text before us, particularly in the way that Jesus gave the boy back to his mother. The phrasing is identical. It's as if Luke wants us to see these things together, but not so that we'd simply conclude that here in Jesus is another prophet just like Elijah, but so that we would also note the differences. Note this difference above them all. What did Elijah do? He prayed to the Lord, and the Lord gave breath to the boy. What did Jesus do? He himself spoke to the boy and said, Arise, and the boy did it. This is someone who is not like any other prophet. This is someone who is indeed the Son of God, as so many would confess. And that, too, is an essential part of our faith, is recognizing that he's not just a man who's been given some authority. He's not just a man who has a little bit of love, who acts loving like God in some ways. He's one who has shown us God himself in human form. He is God incarnate come among us to save Not just a great prophet, but the very Son of God who has come into the world in our likeness to deliver us from all of the chaos and all of the disorder that sin has brought into this world, into this mess. And He is able and He is willing. And so as we go through this life, living our lives in a fallen world, feeling the strain and the difficulty that comes with trials of every sort, sickness and death, causes for weeping, poverty, whatever it is that we might face, we can know for sure that this man, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who came and brought order where there was disorder, who came and overcame death and disease, will again come And complete that work. So faith is not just something I commend to you. Who have not yet believed. Faith is something I commend to all of you. That from first to last in all our lives. All our lives might be lived in faith. In faith in the one who can save us. We come into this life by faith. That is this life as Christians. And we will continue in it with faith 
for all our days by God's grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us now, O Lord, to live this life of faith. You are the author of our faith. You are the one who sustains us in that faith. Help us when we waver. Help us to say, the man who once said, help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, we pray that you would cause all of us to grow in faith so that we would go from people who are sometimes characterized by a little faith to people who are characterized by great faith. And this we pray, O Lord, to you as well, because we know, like all things that we have, all good things, it is a gracious gift that you have given us. So we ask you, Lord, to show us yet more grace, not because of what we deserve, for we deserve nothing, but because of your Son, Jesus Christ, who is righteous, who stands in our place. It's in his name that we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.